And it's also what sets leaders apart from other human beings, you know, that we learn from our mistakes and that, that we become more successful as we grow and develop. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, I'm so happy because I get to talk to my very dear friend, Linda Dillon-Jones. Dr. Dillon-Jones was my predecessor. She was the interim assistant dean for faculty development here at Hopkins when I came, and she showed me all the ropes, taught me the culture at Hopkins. She currently serves as our senior faculty development consultant. And if you've been listening to the podcast or been noodling around the website, facultyfactory.org, you've seen her um, talk on dealing with conflict. So welcome back to the show, Linda. How are you? Hi, Kim. Thanks for having me back. Well, I'm always happy to talk with you, as you know. We have to talk today about something you want to share with the faculty listening to this podcast snippet. And what is the topic of your little snippet today? We're going to call it five key conversations that you should have with your employees. But actually, it's sort of an outline for basic supervision. And I think, you know, I was a faculty member for 14 years before I came to Hopkins and became an administrator. And so I think I know a little bit about how faculty think about their roles, their role as a faculty member. And I think it's fair to say that most of them don't think of themselves as a supervisor. Would you say that's true? I agree with you, yeah. Yeah, we don't really think of that as a role. We think, you know, they're just people helping us and we try to tell them what to do. But you know, and the other thing about faculty is that most of them have not had much time, much experience in public work. What we in North Carolina we called it public work, meaning you're working for a company. You know, so maybe during the summer you work at the local mall or you uh, work at a local manufacturing plant, and you have a supervisor. You know, and you know, so you can at least see a supervisor in action, and you know what it is they do. But a lot of faculty have never had that because they were in school their whole lives. So I think this outline gives faculty a way to sort of think about their role as a supervisor. And um, I like to think of it in terms of just conversations that you have with the people who report to you. And so there are five of them, and I'm going to just name them all now, and then we'll go through and, and talk about each of the five uh, one is when you hire a new employee, how you go about orienting them to the job and to the work you're doing and engaging them so that they're really interested in doing the work. That's the first conversation. The second is how do you establish a direction for them and tell them specifically what they should be doing? The third is how you go about coaching so that their behavior and performance improves immediately. The fourth is how you review and manage their performance over time, things like performance appraisal and progressive discipline. And then finally, how do you coach them for long-term development so that over time they grow and develop into the next obvious position for them to move into? Mm -hmm. So those are the five things we want to talk to employees about. So even before you meet your new employees, you really have to think about how you go about acquiring a new employee. And how do you ensure that we have a really good hire in that process? Have you ever had to hire an employee? I know, in fact, you've hired two really great 
administrative assistants in the office. Oh, gosh. It's actually we're at four now. (laughs) Really? I've been gone a while. Exactly. Hired four. What's your philosophy of going about doing that? Oh, my goodness. Philosophy. Ah, geez. I, you know, try try to be mindful of the the different uh, most this you know the skills required, and then the personalities and the the culture, and seeing that there'll be someone who will fit with the team and is mm-hmm. you know internally motivated and um, you know basically good communication, someone who everyone is comfortable with and has a curiosity, and and certainly the number one priority is they have to have a heart of service. I always kind of you know, hammer that over and over and over again, try to find ways to, that they demonstrate that they have a service mentality. Mm-hmm. You've really done a good job with that. I, I do think the people I've met who you've hired are so helpful and in a loving way, you know, just really genuinely wanting to support everything that's going on in the office, even if maybe it's not their direct responsibility. You know, they've always been so good to me, even though I I'm a part-time person who comes and goes pretty regularly. Well, I think uh, just a few things I, I always think are important. One is to try to establish the largest pool of candidates possible. You know, many times where we've had a position that's vacant for a while and we're so desperate to fill it that we just want to grab the first person who comes along, that can be a really bad mistake. You want to interview as many people as you can find and really spend the time finding the best person. Um, I think it's really important to call references and to, if HR doesn't do that for you, and also to ask the references you do call, is there someone else I should talk to? You know, don't just go to the references they gave you, but go to people who they know mutually, but maybe wouldn't give us somebody who uh, should get a call just so that you're trying to establish if there's anything negative out there you need to know. Uh, I think it's always important to get a work sample if you can, even if you um, have them come for an interview and have them um, interact to solve some problems in maybe an interviewing committee. Or, for example, when I was hiring training people, we would always have them do a presentation. I know a lot of offices will have someone come in and do a talk just so you can see them in action and and, um, see, you know, get a little better understanding of who they are and get to know them. Uh, And finally, especially with faculty, if I'm hiring faculty, I like to really, (laughs) this is a sneaky one, but I like to pick them up at the airport and take them back to the airport and stay with them all day until they are good and tired. Because you can really really learn a lot about people when you see how they're tired at the end of the day. Does that make sense? Wow, that's so funny. I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah, people can really, uh, for example, I was hiring an associate director when I was director of training at the institution, and this person was going to be the financial training person and my assistant, and I was with him all day, and as we were driving to the airport, he took a phone call from his wife, and he said, yeah, the gal who took me around today was really sweet. At that point, I just thought, the gal who took you around today, you know, I just, I I just felt like I can't hire this person (laughs) if that's how they think of me. And I think it's really important to trust your gut, you know, to, to just, 
to your gut can tell you or your intuition can tell you if something's not quite right. So anyway, we're moving on. So now you've hired the person and you're orienting them to the new work and to making those first days, days really special for them and trying to engage them in the work you're doing. And um, one of the things the uh, HR organization at Hopkins has done is created a checklist of all the things that you need to consider, not only in terms of HR, but we created one in our office that just included everything like um, where do you go to get supplies, uh, where do we eat lunch, where do you put your coat, uh, how, how do you get a new computer, how do you sign on, just everything we needed to tell people so that we were ready when they arrived and they didn't feel like we just kind of threw them in the deep end of the pool and didn't do anything to help. But even more important than that, we established some core operating principles. And you can do this with your work group where you just say to them, how do we want to behave toward each other? You know, what, what do we do when we're in conflict? What do we do when we disagree? What do we do when we need a call from the the chief PI? Um, you know, how are we going to handle conflict or disagreement or our work assignments or anything? And you create a checklist of operating principles that the whole group agrees to, and you review it every year so that you're giving them a chance to give input and recommit to the and improve the list and recommit to it every year so that when you hire new people, you start their orientation by saying, here's the list that your colleagues have agreed to. Can you agree to this too? And are you willing to behave in this way? Because this is what we expect from each other. And that's a great way to tell people what the mores are of this organization and what they can expect from us. And, you know, it gives them a lot of information about the behavior that we expect from each other. So it really helps to build a team up front. Now I'm just reflecting back on recent experiences where I had to mediate a challenge with a faculty member and mm-hmm. a trainee. And as you're describing just this first step and putting this, you know, document together, if you will, of how, you know, our blueprint for living here, our culture, if you will. I'm thinking, oh, a faculty member might just kind of roll their eyes and go, really? We have to do all that? Mm-hmm. And yet, that little effort may really help you avoid some really serious problems down the line with uh, other staff or trainees or students or people in your lab or in your clinic or wherever, because... Mm-hmm. Like you said, you're setting an expectation versus just saying, well, yeah. you know, here it is, figure it out, and then you, you all solve your own problems. But So I think that's a, a really good a good um, framework and piece of work that, I mean, it, of course, it's an effort, but I think it really pays off. Yeah, if you don't have an agreement with people about how they're supposed to behave, then you can't really complain <laughs> and they misbehave. And so that's why it's so important for schools of medicine to have a code of conduct, you know, to say, here's the standard we hold each other to, because then you can hold people accountable. But if you've never stated very clearly what that standard is, it's very hard to say, well, you screwed up. (laughs) You weren't supposed to behave that way. So uh, that's really a very important part of orienting people to new work and uh, to to just giving them a sense of what the standards are around here and what the expectations are. 
So the second conversation, and oh, by the way, I think it's really a good thing if you um, if you don't have the time as the PI or the faculty member to uh, do all this orientation with the new person on the day they arrive, this is a very easy thing to delegate to somebody else. And if you give them the checklist, you could even start by having a, a faculty me- a meeting with your work group and just saying, you know, I want to get more organized about how we orient new people. What do you think the things are that we ought to talk about? And can we create a checklist? And then can I delegate to this to you the next time we hire a new person? Because then you're also training them how to be a good supervisor when it's their turn, you know, when they complete their work and now they're in your position. So um, it's empowering the team. Yeah. It absolutely is. You're not just passing along the work, you're saying, here's an experience I can give you that will help you develop into a, a better lead next time. So then the second conversation is now we've got them hired, we've got them oriented, and now they're doing the work every day, whatever that work is. And how do we track that they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing? And so I think a big part of that is to come up with some kind of daily briefing or some kind of daily check-in. And um, it's hard for you as the PI or the faculty member to have that uh, time to do that and to follow up with everybody who reports to you. But I think that is something you can delegate to them, where you say, I'm going to ask you to keep a list of the things you're working on, and I'm going to ask you to find me every couple of days to tell me how you're doing, (laughs) you know, and to make it their responsibility to check in with you so that um, they know it's important to you that they know that you know what they're doing and that you're there to help them and give them any support they need when they need it. So then you can kind of get too far adrift and then things go wrong yeah. and then there are you know bad feelings and you know, disgruntlement and then you, you're off on a bad track all, already. So I, I think that's also a really great advice. Yeah, it was. I remember when I first started reporting to our boss, your boss now, Janice Clements. One of the first things she said to me was. Um, it's really important for you to stay close to me for a while and to check with, in with me. And I know I'm really hard to get a hold of, but I really want us to stay close for a while so that you can ask me any questions you need to ask me. And just the fact that she would say that to me made me feel like, oh, good, I'm not bothering her <laughs> You know, when I try to get in touch with her and track her down. And the other thing is a lot of uh, universities have something called organization development, which is part of HR. Um, These people are usually psychologists or sociologists, consult with faculty members, and they can come in and do organization assessments. So organization development can come in and Uh, do an assessment. They can do a communications audit. They can help you do strategic planning and goal setting. And the nice benefit of that is that once the organization knows what we're working on this year, they can see how their work fits into the whole. And it helps them kind of figure out, you know, what the timing is for their part of the project or they're part of the study and, you know, to understand what the deadlines are and what has to be accomplished by each of the goals that have been set. And so um, it helps everyone see how their part of the picture fits into the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. So that's the second conversation. 
The third conversation is this coaching for immediate results and really giving people daily feedback. So um, feedback is the thing that really empowers us to change and to evolve over time and to learn and to grow into a better employee, a better researcher, a better faculty member. And um, it's truly a gift, although it, the, uh, while it's happening, it may not always feel like a gift. It may feel threatening when someone says to you, Linda, there's something I'd really like to talk to you about. You know, it can sound pretty, um, pretty scary. scary. Right. Yeah. Was there ever anyone in your life, Kim, when you were coming through your training, anybody who took the time to share their perceptions of how you were doing? Oh, yeah. Many, many times. And, and uh, at first it was unsolicited advice. And I was really mm-hmm. intimidated and, um, and and afraid of that. That's like one of my, my weaknesses is, one of my many weak weaknesses is um, be, being sens- very sensitive to criticism. And I, I mm-hmm. learned over time to actually request that kind of feedback and give permission mm-hmm. to people to say, you know, I'm going to do this and I w- I'd like you to watch or be attentive to my doing A, B, or C or not doing X, Y, and Z. And then afterwards asking, how did I do on those things that you were watching? Mm-hmm. Or can you tell me one thing that I could have done better? But yeah, at first when you're not used to that or, or you know, I'm the oldest child, so I'm always the high, high perfectionist and a little bit obsessive compulsive about things. And so when someone would say, oh, actually, that's not right, I'd be horrified. I'd be like, I did what? Oh, my gosh. And I just took it so personally. And I would just perseverate and think about it and think, oh, my gosh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a horrible person. And I'm good. I'm doomed to failure. And so I was very, very hypersensitive to things. And um, it was a, a, my first real mentor, I'll call him my first mentor, kind of told me, you know, you're, you got to you know, toughen up that skin. You know, this is not personal. This is science or you can't take these things mm-hmm. personally. And so I kind of relaxed at that point and then learned, all right, I can't sweat these things and um, it's all for improvement. And now I ask for it. And I, and I'm usually the one who first starts it off with, all right, I know I did this poorly and I could have done that better. So I'm even, you know, more mindful and just transparent with my, my weaknesses and the things that kind of, you know, stick me and, and mess me up. And how about the things that make you special? Have you ever gotten feedback about a special skill that you had that um, that you weren't aware of, maybe? Yeah, I mean, I guess the first time somebody told me, you know, what a great job I was doing at, at a particular role, and I kind of looked at them and thought, well, it was so easy to me. I, I thought, I said, well, I remember saying, well, it's, it's so easy. Anybody can do this. And then she persisted, no, you do this, 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 this. And I said, no, really? I said, I, I don't understand. It's, it's really not that hard. It's, it's so simple. And, and then we had this long conversation where it dawned on me. And now I tell junior faculty members this same bit of advice was she said, the fact that this is so easy for you is the fact that it's your gift. It is your talent. It's your strength. Right. You're incorrect. No, not everyone could do this as easily as you because this is unique to you. You are uber organized. You have mm-hmm. a personality that brings people together. You you are a bridge builder. You uh, love to provide resources to people. This is something that just you walk into the room and 
and the tenor of the room changes. That's you. And I just thought, well, this is just so simple. And I was underestimating my gifts and my talents. And so I've tried doing the same thing to other faculty members that know heightened awareness of the things that maybe you think, well, this can't be a thing because I like it too much (laughs) or I'm so good at it that it's, it's so, it's so easy to me. So that can't be real if I, if it's so easy for me. Well, no, actually that does point to the fact that that is what, you know, what I was made to do. And so that, that did kind of like make me go, what? Um, It is remarkable that people don't know the things they are uniquely skilled at. In my experience, uh, I, I started as a young faculty member when I would give back papers. I just started telling the person who had the best paper as I was handing them back, oh, your paper was the best one and the most interesting in this batch. And nobody ever knew. <laughs> it's really surprising. They had no idea. And they were always so pleased and surprised. And uh, you're right. We think it's easy because it, it is easy for us. But that doesn't make it any less special. So um, I think that's the kind of thing that supervisors can point out for us that really will help people understand what they bring and value their own skills and what they bring to the work that nobody else does quite as well as they do. So here's the secret for that for your listeners out there. It is, you know, if you think, ooh, what feedback can I give to people? Ooh, how am I going to identify? Well, it's really just telling the truth every day. You know, it's not pussyfooting around what's troubling you or pussyfooting around the stuff that's embarrassing to talk about, but it's also not clobbering the stuff that's troubling you or not clobbering when people don't do as well as you'd like them to. Um, it's just telling the truth in an authentic way with love, you know, and that's the kind of feedback. If it's if it comes to your mind that, wow, Kim is so good at that, I really want to recognize her for that, go ahead and talk about it, even though you're busy and you've got other things to do. Just take a minute or two to say, wow, I was so impressed that you did this. And at the same token, if somebody really screws up and really lets you down, to have the the courage and the time to say, boy, I was really disappointed this morning. I needed that projector, and you volunteered to bring it, and you were 30 minutes late, and that delayed my presentation and really threw me off my game. And boy, you know, that was really disappointing, you know, to just go ahead and tell the truth for good or for bad and have those feedback conversations so that people know when they're measuring up and when they're not. So basically, do a little groundwork. You know, you may um, invite somebody into your office or meet them for coffee or just say, oh, can we sit down here for a minute? I want to talk to you. Um, private places are probably better, but if it's a quiet hallway, maybe even in the hallway, because you don't want to, you know, feedback becomes more terrifying if there's a big setup around it, you know, can you meet me in my office at three o'clock this afternoon? I have something I want to talk to you about. Really makes it scary. But if you just say, 
I want to have a brief conversation with you about something I noticed. Can we sit down here a minute and just make these conversations so regular that they just become how we behave to each other, you know? And so you've done your groundwork. You think, here's the goals of the conversation that I want to have with this person. Here's what I want to accomplish. Here's what they're doing I don't want them to do. Here's, Here's what they're not doing that I want them to do. And then uh, establish a little bit of a rapport, meaning, you know, not behind a desk, not um, looking like you're documenting something that's going to go in their permanent folder, but just a nice rapport of, hi, how are you? I'm so glad we have a moment to talk about this. I'm only going to take 15 minutes of your time, but here's something I wanted to raise with you. And then say, how do you feel? You know, get their response, get a nice closed loop conversation going where they get a chance to respond, ask what they would need to be able to address the issue, what help they need from you, and then try to set a goal. You know, when can we look at this again and see how you're doing and and really make sure that we're um, working towards something that's going to be mutually agreeable and that's going to put the work forward in a positive direction and then make a plan for follow-up. You know, can we um, talk about this again in a couple weeks and see how you're doing? So, um, you know, just a nice informal chance to have a little conversation. People talk about a uh, feedback sandwich And the advice that used to be given is tell them something positive, then tell them something negative, then tell them something positive, you know, and kind of sandwich two good pieces of information with a negative thing in the middle. But I don't think um, that works very well, especially if you're doing progressive discipline, especially if you're really trying to... um, document the um, whatever the behavior is so that you can hold people accountable and potentially fire them if they're not able to change this behavior. Um, that positive, negative, positive model, many times people miss the message because you said two good things and you only said one bad thing. So, hey, that was a good meeting. I got two good things out of it. Have you seen that happen, Kim, oh, where yeah. people are saying, they come away thinking, oh, that was a good meeting. I got good feedback, but they kind of overlook the negative thing in the middle. So I think a better way to approach it is to look for the good intention behind any negative behavior. Because usually when people are screwing up, it's because, I mean, outside of just skills that they haven't developed, but in terms of behaviors like anger or um, um well, anger is the big one, you know, conflict, when we're conflict prone in an environment, usually there's some strength that they're overdoing. So many times um, people like to work quickly, but in this case, they're not paying attention to the results they're getting because they want to finish quickly. So you might say something like, I know you like to work quickly, but in this case, it felt to me like you weren't paying attention to what you're doing. Or I know you really really value your attention to detail and you're very detail-oriented and you're very careful and I know everything you do is really um, the best. And uh, sometimes when you focus on that, things take you a long time. And so I like that that Mm -hmm. idea of couching it. And okay, yeah, she recognizes 
the fact that I'm doing it because of this reason versus maliciously or on purpose trying to be, uh, you know, a problem or trouble. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, for example, um, I know you like to state your own mind and you have strong opinions, and that's a good thing. But when you state those strong opinions as powerfully as you do, I think you reduce the input that you're going to get from other people. You, you know, so look for the strength behind the negative thing that's happening, and that's, that's a great way to approach just giving people little daily comments about that. Yeah, because, it, you know, as a faculty member, I've seen so many times when people misbehaved in meetings and really said things that were quite horrible to each other, and nobody ever replied or pointed it out or said, hey, <laughs> we don't behave that way around here. You know, it, it takes a lot of courage to confront these little things, and I think people don't do it because they think it'll take too long, you know, and they're so busy they just want to move on with the rest of their day. But actually, it can be as short as the sentence, you know, where you're just saying, hey, that was kind of short. Did you mean to sound as angry as you sounded? You know, just a little bit of feedback goes a long way. So that's the daily performance piece. The fourth conversation is the reviewing and managing performance over time. And a lot of uh, organizations have performance appraisal systems in place. Uh, most organizations have a progressive discipline system in place. And it's so funny to me that faculty members tend to think that it's impossible to fire somebody. I've heard people say that so many times. It's impossible to fire people around here. Well, no, it's really not. All you have to do is document poor performance three times. You know, if you write a memo three times, here's what's happened Here's what you were asked to do. Here's how far you are from the mark. Here's what we need to see in terms of change in your behavior going forward. You and I have talked about it on this day. I'm signing it. You're signing it. That's the first instance. Do two more of those, and you can fire people. And so that is a, a conversation I hope people don't have to have, but it is manageable, and you don't have to keep bad employees around. You just don't. And you can always call your HR rep and ask, you know, what does it, what is it going to take? What does our progressive discipline process look like in this organization? What will I have to do? Here are the issues I have. You know, how, what do you want me to do going forward? Because I'm planning to fire this person if they don't change their behavior going forward, if they don't change their performance going forward. And then whatever the performance appraisal process is, it's usually uh, planned and approved and fairly automatic, and I would encourage people to do it because that's the way that you can give people annual feedback about how their work is going. And um, in most organizations, that's important when you go to be promoted, for example, in government or the military, they always pull out those annual performance reviews to say, Here's what I've done to achieve this next position I'm moving into. That doesn't happen so much in academia, but um, it certainly gives people a, a better understanding of where they're measuring up, even in terms of faculty uh, wanting to be promoted. 
you know, and most faculty experience that with their department chair every year when they're going through and saying, here's how close you are to tenure. Here's what we need to see between now and uh, when the time comes so that we know uh, along the way whether you're measuring up to being promoted or not. So that should happen at every level of the organization every year all along the way. So that's the fourth conversation. And the final conversation is the coaching for long-term development. And that's the conversation where we're saying, what are your long-term goals? Where do you want to be five years from now? Where do you want to be 10 years from now? Uh, You know, just so we know what the career path is that the person has in mind. And um, do you think that's realistic or would you recommend something else? Or, you know, what input would you have for them? And also, are you training them to move up in your organization? Because the minute you can be replaced, then you can go on to that next highest level. You know, so it's really you're preparing the people who are going to um, uh, take over your organization when you move on to a higher level of challenge. And so you're, in a way, serving yourself by developing the people around you. So let me give you a quick quiz, Kim. Uh That's hard to say. Quick quiz, Kim. This is a true-false test, four questions. Let me ask you, is experience the best teacher, true or false? Is experience the best teacher, false? And what what would you say, what is the best teacher? I think it's a lot of things. It's not only experience. It's 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 people sharing their wisdom, you know, with me, and my observing other people's experience. It's my my teaching and teaching myself and and learning and reading and watching and observing and thinking and introspection. And so, I guess it defines how depends how you define experience. But am I am I right? <laughs> I think you're right. There are a lot of tactics that you can use to teach people um, because experience always doesn't teach the right lesson, and it can be really slow and inefficient, and it's based on random events, you know, not best practices. So people need to have experiences and learning experiences that address specifically what it is they're trying to learn. And you don't always get that just from doing your job every day, especially if you're trying to grow into the next level of job. Um, So question two, development occurs naturally as we grow. Hmm? False. I don't think it's always natural. I think we have to purposely and purposively seek it out and get it and be mindful of it. I I think if we just assume things will happen when they happen, then, then we can be in trouble. Absolutely. People need to ask themselves, what do I need to learn? Uh, What would it be to my advantage to do differently? And what does my situation call for? And I think those three questions are really important for long-term development, to really always be asking yourself, what do I need to learn? What does my situation call for? What would it be to my advantage to do differently? And kind of get off of automatic pilot and just doing what you've always done, but really think each time in each new situation, what would be the best thing to do in this case? Or do I need to ask for some advice? Do I need to get some help from somebody who's done something like this before? And that's where the real high-level growth and development comes from. 
So the third question is, people learn best from their mistakes, true or false? People learn best from their mistakes, false. Right. <laughs> they learn something from their mistakes, but um, learning from your mistakes can be a very bitter way to develop. The best thing would be to avoid making those mistakes and to get out in front and kind of set aside your ego and think, um, what, what do I need to learn? How do I need to approach this new situation? Where can I get some help? Uh, where can I um, expand my thinking so that I really understand all the depth that's in this situation that maybe you know, my knee-jerk reaction won't kind of get to the depth of what I need to know to respond well to this and avoid making mistakes. And then the fourth question, people are responsible for their own development, true or false? False. No, I, I think yeah. it's where, yeah, we are interdependent in this. We're all working together on this. I think, you know, as you were just, the third question there, I was thinking, I think maybe some junior colleagues or trainees or students or staff or whomever our faculty are supervising, if they might feel resentful if you're just, you know, they feel like you're waiting for them to mess up and mm -hmm. learning from their mistakes, rather saying, if you could see this train coming down the track, my gosh, why didn't you, you know, give me a high okay. sign or, or give me a warning or you've been here, you've been at this show a few times, uh, give me a little help here. You know, that it's up to us to, you know, we, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Let's help each other out versus just standing back and testing people to see how they're going to fail or where they're going to fail. That's that to me sounds like a hostile environment, but sorry. Yeah. I'm kind of was st yeah. stuck on your number three, but no, it's, it's, it's an interdependent. This is we're we're all in this together. Yeah, and it, it's funny how developing people and creating really strong relationships with your mentees really gives you a gift. And now that, you know, the, what I'm learning from being older and being retired now for six years is that of my doctoral students from when I was at NC State, um, I'm still in touch with about four of them. And um, I've traveled with them. You know, I've visited them in Europe. Um, they come to my home and bring their children, and they're probably going to be at my funeral. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny how the people who you develop, the people who you help develop, are the people who are at your retirement party, the people who love you and care about you, and they are a gift that you give yourself while you're helping them. You know, and also you're helping the field. You know, um, people talk about replacing yourself. You know, that you should really um, uh, replace yourself as a professional person in the field. Mm -hmm. And um, that's how the field grows and develops and, and becomes um, a, a better body of knowledge, you know, a broader, more complete body of knowledge that is really doing more good in the world. And that's really the capacity that human beings have that um, really is what makes us great, this ability to develop and improve our skills and our abilities. That, that's really what sets us apart from other animals, and it's also what sets leaders apart from other human beings, you know, that we learn from our mistakes and that, that we become more successful as we grow and develop. 
So that's really the last conversation that you want to have with people who report to you is helping them to develop over time. Because I think in a way you get credit for everything, all of their achievements too become your achievements. You, you know, I love musical theater and I always think of Oscar Hammerstein because my favorite um, musical producer, writer, uh, you know, the genius Stephen Sondheim is produces my favorite musicals. And he says that he would not have learned his skills and pursued his career if it hadn't been for Oscar Hammerstein, uh, the great composer who wrote um, Showboat in Oklahoma. You know, he was really a, a very famous, successful composer in his own right. But Oscar Hammerstein mentored Stephen Sondheim when he was a young boy. And so if I had to say who's the greatest, I would have to say it's Oscar Hammerstein because he gets credit for everything he did. And he also gets credit for everything Stephen Sondheim did. <laughs> you know? And so that's the way I like to think about development is that, uh, you know, we all have to uh, carry somebody along with us and make them great while we're achieving our own greatness. And it, it also makes me think of that Maya Angelou quote, right? That people won't necessarily remember what you say or what you do or something like that, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Yes. And I'm reflecting yeah. on your comment about how those, you know, key people in your life will probably be at your funeral. I mean, mm -hmm. to me, that's, isn't that what it's all about? Doesn't that make it you know, just work better if you can leave every day and know that, um, you know, you are nurturing an environment and a life for mm -hmm. people who actually um, are learning something and feeling good and positive and confident and encouraged and like they're being told the truth. And then the other thing, yeah. I love that you say you tell the truth every day, mm -hmm. tell the truth, mm -hmm. good or yeah. bad. And to know that if people are working in that kind of environment, that you were going to tell them the truth about yourself and them gosh, what better gift yeah. can we give to people and make them feel good about themselves knowing that we we have them. You know, we are all together. Mm -hmm. I got you. We are all walking each other home. And this is yeah. a safe place to fall. It's a, it's a safe place to be real and authentic. Yeah. Because otherwise, you hate coming to work every day. You know? And I think when people look at their careers and they're saying, oh, God, I'm so sick of this work. Well, you haven't quite built a relationship and built a community with the people around you so that you've made it a loving place. You know, you, you, you haven't made a community of people who care about each other enough that you want to keep coming back every day. Yeah. You know, so that's really part of what leaders do. They create the environment around them, you know, with their, you can see their own personality in the work group around them. And um, I don't know, that's really the best, one of the nicest things you can give yourself is to create a place where everybody who's there wants to be there um, because of the environment and, and you know, the good that you do together every day. That's the, that's the end of my remarks, Kim. I've told you everything I know now. So, <laughs> this is the end. My dear friend, Dr. Linda Dillon-Jones, Senior Faculty Development Consultant and 
Hope you come in next time and listen to the podcast, and um, we'll be getting Linda back on here again soon. I just know it. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thanks, Linda. Bye, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.